Sessions Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to TDN AusNZ's Connections Cast, long-form conversations with leading thoroughbred industry figures presented by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Now, even those that struggle to tell a mackerel from a mako will be familiar with today's guest, a leviathan in the fishing industry and a self-confessed hobbyist in the racing version. Sir Peter Vela, KNZM, has spent more than 40 years chasing success and he sometimes catches it. Few years can have been as challenging for New Zealand's night with a net as the last one, though, riddled as it was by pandemic-sized challenges. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. Sir Peter, welcome. I bet you are glad that the Caraca Premier sale is finally here. Uh, hi, Angus. Yeah, no, I'm, I couldn't uh, deny that. It's uh, been a nervous wait and uh, not knowing whether it will or it won't or when or maybe. And, uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, I'm delighted to be on site and, uh, and uh, as are the horses and the people are streaming in. Yes, people are streaming in for sure. When, when sales time comes around, we normally look at metrics, you know, the average up, the median up, et cetera, et cetera. Now, final numbers aren't in, but I gather with the proximity of the NZB Premier Sales this week's border access announcement, the percentage of shotgun weddings to Kiwis by Aussie bloodstock agents has gone through the roof. Is that true? <laughs> We're very much encouraged by those that are, are arriving and... Uh, those that were fortunate enough to uh, already be married to, to uh, a Kiwi or vice versa, and uh, uh, like Peter Moody, for example, and uh, we're, we're delighted that, uh, that there's a good number of them indicating that uh, they'll see us on Sunday or Monday. Take me back to November, December, when the decision was made to move from that traditional late January slot. What, what was the energy around the business and what was your thinking on the decision to move? Was it just that your hands were tied and you had no other option? How, how many scenarios did you kick around? All of the scenarios were not pleasant and it, was, uh, it wasn't a difficult conclusion to come to. Anything was going to be better than uh, uh, a normal slot and, uh, and logic said, you know, buy some time and uh, and if we could do it without upsetting the existing uh, sales, let's give it a try. So uh, it hasn't been hitting the jackpot, but um, it, I think it was the right decision. We were talking off air before we started recording because the other rhetoric that is coming through out of this decision is that the yearlings having an extra month or two of preparation and maturity, it's been quite beneficial for them. And that kind of speaks to the, the New Zealand breed as a whole, which have traditionally been late maturers. An extra month or two can't have hurt. Angus, that's the, that's the, the real truth of it. Um, the, the time won't be wasted. So the, the horses are parading beautifully and, uh, and there are... As you say, uh, some of the slower maturing of the rip thoroughly enjoyed the, the additional time. Let's go much further back. Let's go pre-pandemic. Let's go pre-Y2K bug. Let's go pre-equine influenza, all of that that garbage that's gone on over the last sort of 25-odd years. And, and talk about your acquisition of rights and, and the 
evolution into what it is today. Take the younger listeners back to those days and give us a picture of what not only the sales company was like when you took it on, but also what the industry in New Zealand was like around 1997. Looking back on it, it doesn't feel like uh, 25 years or more. Um, And it really came about because my brother and I in the fishing industry and, and hobbyists and uh, the horse business, we were really asked um, by the industry leader, Tom Sir Patrick Hogan, uh, whether or not, this was December, uh, whether or not we would buy the business from the existing owners who it had come to the end of the road as far as they were concerned. It was no longer for business for them. And um, we were asked whether we would, in our enthusiasm, uh, take it over and organise it for a year or two until uh, the, the breeders got themselves organised. And um, sadly, we haven't got to the point where they are organised and have been back to us and said, right, you know, well done, it's been a good job. And, but we're ready now. So it was uh, always intended to be a, a, a tr- tr- transitional uh, thing, uh, buying a business in December and the knowledge that uh, you're going to have a sale uh, a month or so later and uh, all the, the things that go with a sale, it's certainly been a massive learning curve that uh, it's not just bring a horse to a sale and, uh, and line it up and collect the money. It's, it's, um, uh, it's an interesting business. I mean, I mean, you you said it yourself. So Patrick saw you coming a mile off. He saw two brothers that were were super enthusiastic and uh, and took advantage of that. But you were running a very successful enterprise uh, on in, in Vela Fishing. Did you bring bean counters in to do a bit of due diligence and and that sort of thing, or was it literally you didn't even have time to do that? We didn't really. I guess we we um, the, the, the was days of thought. You know, rather than weeks or months, and uh, and um, we were very close uh, at the time, um, and still are. It was uh, Joe Walls was uh, um, advising us, and the, the, mostly of short uh, uh, shortcomings of the of the business, and uh, warning us, and, but at the same time encouraging us to. Uh, that we would be well supported, and, and we have been. So it's look, it's it's time's gone quickly, and we're I think in a better place now than we once were, and uh, and uh, we've enjoyed the journey. Tell me more about that better place, as you said, over that journey. If you could put your finger on the one thing that Sir Peter Vela is most proud of of achieving with what was Wrightson's is now New Zealand bloodstock in that time. What, what would it be? I, I guess if you have a look around the context, uh, um, uh, we, we got it in its infancy, we completed it, we built some more barns and some more offices and planted some more trees and sealed the paintings and, uh, and so on. It's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful uh, place now. It's considered to be uh, most... Bloodstock companies around the world measure their performance against uh, uh, how we present, and, and, mm. uh, and uh, we're, we're really proud of that. It's um, we would like to have been able to say that we've grown the business 
but the reality is we haven't. And uh, uh, the values have gone up, but the number of falls have gone down. So um, for the next person that comes along, there's an enormous task to be done to get back to 10,000 falls a year instead of 3,500. But that's just uh, a fact of life and development, and uh, um, that's going to take a much greater run than mine. <laughs> well, I think you're doing yourself a disservice, and I know you're, you're surrounded by some pretty great brains, and we'll talk about that later in the chat. I mean, it, it is extraordinary because that year was significant not just for the Wrightsons uh, deal, that was the year that the New Zealand industry lost the Tristram. That was the year that Zabir was sort of becoming ascendant and Octagonal and Might and Power were doing their thing in the in, on the other side of the Tasman. Were there moments where you, you thought, oh, my gosh, we've inherited some pretty exciting stuff here, but what have we, what have we done? Yeah, there were lots of times when we we wondered what on earth we've done to um, uh, to deserve the worry that goes with trying uh, to to make a better place for uh, for the breeders and customers, and, and it's a sort of business that you have two sets of customers. You're constantly trying to to please those that sell with you and those that buy from. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's complex and, and that you're in the middle of it and it's hard to contemporaneously make both groups happy. But mm. um, we, we lost our whole crop has decreased in the 25 years quite significantly. Uh, the actual return to the breeders has gone in the right direction where... Uh, 1996, the average of the, the, the sale was probably in the 30,000, sort of 35,000 or something like that. And uh, uh, let's not chance this week's sale, but let, we'll hope for a significantly increased return on that. that. That's an interesting observation, Peter, because there's been a lot of rhetoric in New Zealand over the last few years, and I know you're involved with with the rationalisation of the, the New Zealand industry and research into that and working, working on, you know, in concert with the Masara report and things like that. But in a way, the breeding industry was the canary in the coal mine of tightening the quantity of, of, of collateral within their arm of the industry and upping the quality. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I th I think it is. And... Uh... Uh, you know, long may it continue, and we're excited now to be to be attracting more and more of the people, uh, like the new owners of Cambridge Star, yeah. uh, Brendan and Joe Lindsay, who bring their wealth from another industry. That the great strength of the, the Australian industry is that there's a massive investment being attracted into to racing from all of the other industries in, in Australia. And that is an amazingly uh, great asset that, uh, that we just have to keep working towards, that uh, uh, you can't be better off than having people wanting to spend their, 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 their profits from other industries into your industry, in which case uh, it's rising. And we are, we are just so lucky that we have Australia on our doorstep with state money that uh, 
that could only ever have been dreamt about. This podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm, but a leading stallion nursery. In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire better than ready. Vinery Studs Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Jubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and Young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State, and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and Golden Slipper winner Stay Inside. Newgate, raising and consigning top-class future stallions. You've invested plenty of money in the industry from, from another endeavour, but your love of, of racing goes way, way back. Talk to me about a, a Croatian emigre compatriot of your dad named Tony Marinovic, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. Explain to me how Tony is ultimately to blame for you picking up a bad case of thoroughbred fever. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you speak it like a real promise, so it's, uh, you can relax. But um, Uncle Tony came to New Zealand with Dad in the, in the Dad got here in 1928. And, um, and I don't know why, but the, the racing it, it was a, something that uh, the moment they got enough to have a feed and uh, a house and a car, they, they were looking for some leisure activity. And... Uh, and <laughs> And in the case of Uncle Tony Marinovich, he he, uh, he went donkey deep into racing and uh, and ended up training uh, a team of racehorses. Of course, um, uh, I think 1954 or five or thereabouts, he was fortunate enough with a horse called Tesla to win the Auckland Cup. And I suppose um, it, I remember. It, Vividly, the celebrations and the pleasure and, the, and, and so on. That uh, uh, and I just like the horses, and I always, you know, wanted to be part of it. If I, if I could ever get to race one, I would be over the moon. I love that term. He fell donkey deep because you fell donkey deep into it as well. To the point where did you work behind the barriers uh, uh, to put yourself through uni? So that's exactly what happened. Uh, Saturday's races, um, starting school attendance, and uh, I think about thirteen or fourteen dollars a day for the exercise. But um, unfortunately, I was too close to the wagering side of the racing point on, on there, and uh, thirteen dollars for the uninitiated didn't go very far. But uh, it brought me some good lessons. <laughs> Yeah, when your pay packet doesn't actually leave the track with you. And I imagine, as you said, it it, it taught you some good lessons. I mean, you were going through university uh, studying economics at the time, and, and <laughs> I mean, that was an economic lesson in and of itself from the University of Life. You, you, go, in, you go into the family business of sorts. Your old man was um, fishing was his, his raison d'etre, if you like. So you build up a bit of a bank uh, and then get involved in, in racing a few. The first truly elite horse you get your hands on was a Sir Tristram filly out of Gold Heights. Tell me about the Noble Heights journey. 
Well, it was an amazingly good journey. It was, uh, I think we bought her in about uh, maybe 79 or thereabouts. My brother and I made the conscious decision, we're enjoying racing, but let's see if we can go another step and, and buy a nice filly and free from that. So that was the, the start. So, so Tristram was in his... Uh, the set were, she was in the second prop of Sir Tristram. So he hadn't hit the heights yet. Correct. But um, uh, uh, Jeff Murphy had one from the first prop, and he was telling us that this could be the, the you know, next best thing. So we weren't dissuaded from the fact that, uh, that, that Sir Tristram wasn't the most attractive horse, uh, and those that were advising us were... We're, we're warning us that uh, we might be on the wrong track. But um, we were happy that the, the Battle Heights family was something that really struck us where mm. we, we've been affected and great uh, horses in it. And, uh, and Patrick Hogan's study was selling it and, uh, and uh, we bought it for it. I think the average of the sale was around 30 and I think we paid 12000 Oh my gosh! What a oh, bargain! Yeah, and and, and also, with it, I just was having this conversation with the vet this morning, and um, the the vets just wouldn't even look at it twice because of the knees and pops and something else. And, and uh, but we were still determined we wanted it. And uh, um, Laurie Laxon, uh, he was going to train it, and he was happy to give it a go. And uh, and, and, and so it went the first time he took it to the trials, 800 metres, and it bolted up. And uh, the, the joy of it was that it's for everybody that's buying a horse, they don't have to pass every veterinary inspection. Um, there's just got to be something about them the mates and want to run. And she won a group race at 1,200, 1,400, 1,600, 2,000, listed at 2,100 and 2,400 group race. And retired perfectly sound. So uh, the man that can tell you they definitely won't race is uh, is on pretty thin ice. He's a, he's either a poor man or a or a liar. She her, her racing career also ignited, and, and you mentioned your brother and you made a decision to race some fillies. Ignited your bloodstock portfolio to a, to a degree. What was the bloodstock? strategy from that point on? Did you make a decision on how you would grow your group of mares or did it just sort of happen organically? No, no, we did. We had a conscious decision to try and buy well-bred uh, fillies, enjoy them racing them and uh, try and breed what we couldn't afford to buy if you are buying them off the track. Uh, we took the path that it was a lot cheaper to buy them going onto the track, mm. try and have some luck and, uh, and then breed from them. And, and that's what we did. Uh, we did it the, the following year with uh, uh, with a, a vice regal filly that went on to be the sort of foundation there of, of the family that's given us so much joy. Yes, Reichborg, obviously not quite the racehorse that in, in terms of accomplishment that Noble Heights was, but in terms of significance to the operation, there's probably not a more significant animal in that time. Before we move on to Reichborg, because she, I want to talk about her and her avalanche of, of descendants for Pencaro. At this stage, were you what you would call a pedigree nerd? What was your learning curve in the, the, the bloodstock space around this time? I was 
nerdish, but I wasn't very well informed. <laughs> but I was willing to learn and um, um, took advice from, was lucky enough to be able to sort out the people that did uh, already understand the categories and how to match them up and so on and so forth. So um, was lucky enough to know that I wasn't very well informed, but very willing to become so. And, uh, and I guess uh, um, I'm no genius now, but I do understand uh, generally the right path for a, for a category to go down. The 2022 sales season is here. And if you want integrity you can trust, you need a Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia accredited member. FBAA members are guided by a strict code of ethics, making them accountable in all dealings and giving confidence that you'll be represented to the highest possible standard. For contact details of FBAA agents, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and secure peace of mind today. Your old mate Sir Tristram comes up again because you united Sir Tristram and, and Reich Borg and the produce of that mating was a horse that took you on a heck of a journey. First of all, on both sides of the Tasman, but then on both sides of the equator, the Romney Conti journey. Just give me a quick sort of roller coaster ride that led up to the decision to go to Hong Kong, of all places, and, and contest an international race. Laurie was of the view that she was talented enough to be a group winner and, and, and good company. And, um, and that's the path we went down. We were lucky enough to have uh, uh, Shane Dye. At the time, he rode for us in, uh, in Sydney before we went there. And he, he said unquestionably that she's on the way up. And, uh, and Laurie was keen to... to try and we would have tried anything then so off we went we were unlucky that uh, the the races were cancelled there in the december that she was due to go and they were postponed until late we went and we were lucky that was uh... describe hong kong to me in 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 the early 90s because nowadays it is a world leader in the racing space uh it's uh, the gold standard for wagering and and the way to run a racing organization but back then it was a an emerging power if you like what what did what did the locals make of of this adventurous kiwi team coming over to plunder their riches well they were very keen on the development of racing there and so they were absolutely magnificent uh, to anybody that was prepared to go up there and have a try. Uh, no, no shadow of doubt that our memories of the, the Hong Kong days were made great by the, the welcome we got from the Hong Kong truck stuff and, and the way everything fell into place. The, um, the, 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 the race itself, um, we looked at it at the time and thought it's probably a, an easy way to get into an international race and, and so on. With the wisdom of hindsight and looking back on the race, it was uh, yeah, it, it should have been a good one. It wasn't at the time yes. and, and uh, it was soon to become so. But when you look back and see what was in it and what, who we beat and uh, uh, the, the, the subsequent winner of the Caulfield Cup was in it, the subsequent winner of the Coronation Stakes and the and the the Ark uh, was in it, and she became probably the greatest brood there uh, that, that uh, we've seen for a very long time with Galileo. 
uh, mother of um, Silas Vars and so on, uh, Urban C. Mm. So um, it, it, it was wonderful to be there then in a, in a group race in Hong Kong, in a group three, uh, and even more wonderful now to look back on uh, what it became that race and those that contested it. And, and uh, uh, wonderful thoughts and memories. I'm so glad you brought up Urban Sea because her Annis Mirabilis uh, as a broodmare, her first of, of a few actually as a broodmare Urban Sea, was 2001. And that was also the Annis Mirabilis for uh, your wonderful Romani Conti. Uh, she, you, you sent her to uh, Rhythm at Cambridge Stud. And by the way, I, I feel like Sir Patrick should have been the one buying rights since the amount of money you poured into Cambridge Stud sending your mares to, to him over the years. But you, you sent your Sir Tristram mare to, to Rhythm, uh, a, a dirt horse by Mr Prospector. You get this uh, medium-sized, uh, lovely filly who turns into a classic winner, a dual cup winner, and a winner of one of the most thrilling wait-for-age uh, middle-distance races you'll ever see. I'm going to put the steel to you, Sir Peter. What is your favourite ethereal racing memory, the one that stands out the most? The one that stands out the most is the, uh, is the way for age race uh, in Sydney, simply because there was so much surrounding when she won the cup. Uh, the horse that looked like it should have won it uh, I think was scratched on the That's right, the Universal Prince, yes. Correct. So we lived for a fair while with the thought that uh, had it been there, we wouldn't have had the fun and the joy. So um, it was a, a magnificent relief to, to run so well that day uh, against Universal Prince and uh, uh, we were so overjoyed that we never ran her again. She retired perfectly sound that day as well and I thought, right, that was, I mean, that was just a thrilling race to watch as a spectator. I mean, I was, I was still at university at the time, and I remember watching it and 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 thinking, if go go to a script writer and get them to script a more thrilling conclusion to a race. As you said, not only did she win the BMW, she she removed the asterisks from her Melbourne Cup. Yeah. Uh, there'd been a little bit of sort of. Uh, unfair, I think, uh, criticism of her uh, earlier in the autumn, which she put to bed. And as you said, you then dropped the mic and said, right, we're off. That's it. We're, we're, we're done. I have a memory of being in your pool house uh, in, uh, on, on the farm in close proximity to the, uh, to the Melbourne Cup that ethereal one, um, and I even remember some of the evening. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I wonder, do you still take the cup out and, and some of those trophies and sort of relive that wonderful season, that that spring into that autumn? And I suppose the winter as well with the Queensland Oaks leading into that as well. Yeah, we do, and uh, we, we still we're still lucky enough to have ethereal on the farm. Uh, she's very well retired now, but she's uh, happily uh, uh, the boss of the show still. And we still have um, events where people like to come and see and see the cup, which we're always happy to do. We've just, uh, in the next week or so, opening a, a hotel on the complex here at Karanka. And right. uh, the, the uh, uh, restaurant is to be called the Ethereum. And, nice. Uh, Hopefully we'll find a nice home for the cups and things. 
somewhere in that restaurant and uh, give lots of people a chance to reflect and enjoy dinner and a glass. I love it. You've just explained how you name your restaurants. What's the process naming your horses? Is it done by committee? Do you get the family involved? What's what's the, the go when you're, you're selecting what to call horses? I always did it with, uh, you know, places we've been and enjoyed and wines that we loved and cigars we enjoyed and, and, and it was quite easy for us. That was our committee, you know. Um, since his passing and... Uh, it's now the, the, the kids, they, they sit down and name them, and, uh, which is nice to have somebody else involved in doing it, but uh, I spend most of my time asking, what does this mean and what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> unlike Richborg remembering a wonderful day in the year and, uh, and, and wanting it to remember the opportunity. You need to, as soon as everything opens up, Sapedi, you need to organise a, a, a tour of the old world or the Napa Valley or something to, uh, to, to replenish your list of potential names. Yeah, exactly, exactly. My first course was called Dominus, now a fabulous wine from the Napa Valley. Yeah, there that, you go. That was in 19, uh, 1970, I think. That was, a, that was a rare case of you getting in ahead of the wine. <laughs> exactly. Entries for Inglis's 2022 Breeding Stock Sales Series, which saw significant growth across all renewals last year, are now open. Be it a weanling or broodmare, don't miss out on excessively strong current markets by selling first in Sydney or last in Melbourne. Entries closing soon. Visit inglis.com.au for more information. There are so many great horses that you've been involved with. For time, we can't possibly list them all, but... I want to ask you about colts in general. You've often said that you'll never stand a stallion at Pencaro, but you have started investing in partnerships in racing a few colts, not necessarily bred by you, most notably recently a stallion prospect extraordinaire in home affairs. Is at least the corner of one eye on the stud barn with these colts or is it a racing experience for you? Look, it's uh, the, the, the... Certainly not to stand a stallion, but um, having said that, when you mention home affairs, I mean, that could be quite different, but I couldn't have <laughs> I don't think they're going to let you have him. Certainly, no. But uh, I wanted to be part of the Cornwall Syndicate because they, uh, all of the life I've been in racing, uh, they're just such wonderful contributors to it and supporters of it, and uh, they've made it what it is today, and it... Uh, I was just delighted to be invited by them to be part of a, of a, of a syndicate um, that, uh, you know, Tom Magner has run and organised and done it brilliantly. And um, my experience with the Cooler family goes right back to the, to the vintage of wines in 1982 when uh, his father, John, was just starting his journey on red wine. And uh, I remember saying, he said to me, what, the, what do you recommend? And I said, well, they say that this is 1984. They, I, I said to him, they say that there's a really nice uh, uh, Bordeaux, the 82 vintage of Bordeaux could be as good as it has been for a century. And I said, get a, buy a couple of bottles of Chevron uh, Long for something and try it. And uh, he, he then became the biggest private 
older and maybe too sure of long outside. <laughs> so I learned that to, to be very cautious about recommending to John anything about the sorts of wines that should be buying. If you wanted to, if you wanted to drink a glass of any of that wine, you had to be careful in case he bought the entire crop. You're saying, yeah, but he's always got a nice bottle of it if you're uh, ever passing. Yeah. John, if you're listening, I'd be more than willing to to sample some of the wines that were purchased by Golden Fleece's Derby winner. What a great anecdote! We just talked about buying wine, and and this week buying hopefully appreciating and maturing assets of different kind is the theme it's it's the yearling sales uh, pencaro doesn't just breed to race you breed to sell and you've had some very significant sales over the years a few sale toppers uh, uh the the danehill colt from from romney conti's three-quarter group one winning sister grand Eshazo, uh among them he turned into darcy brahma the experience of watching a horse like Darcy Brahma, and I know you sort of continued to be involved in the Darcy story as, as it went on, but the experience of watching it from a slight remove without the blue and white and, and that sort of thing, how is that different from racing one of your fillies or something like that? Well, believe it or not, it's um, yeah, every time a Darcy Brahma horse races, it's I, I can see the blue and white on it, but it doesn't matter that it's not, but... Uh, that the horse is owned by somebody else. I get as much pleasure uh, in watching uh, that happen, and, and uh, it's it's really the next step in the joy of the of the industry. Last Saturday, uh, Darcy Brahma won a Group One in Australia. Um, uh, Burgundy won a couple of groups, best of Group Two and Group Three in, in New Zealand. Turned me loose. Uh, mm. to, uh, it was bred by our great race caller, George Simon, uh, who didn't have him there, and I lent him one, uh, and he bred for the champion, Timmy Lewis. So those things have given me as much pleasure as, uh, as anything. I, I note, too, that it's not necessarily just about the group races for you, is it? You're quite happy. In fact, you're quite invested in Wednesday racing at Ruakaka or somewhere, somewhere like that, as much as you are at Ellerslie on a Saturday. Exactly. Yeah, no, I am. It's... Uh, it's, it's just a great game, great people, and, and uh, it's, uh, you get to enjoy it with, with similar uh, ambitions, similar memories of the disappointments of defeats, and it's, uh, it's a pretty good space for the end. How different is the buzz of selling a Darcy Brahma, the buzz you get when a horse you have uh, that carries your brand, that V in the box, is knocked down for a high six-figure or a seven-figure sum? compared to the buzz you get from winning a big race. Is there a difference to it? Is it a similar? Uh, undoubtedly, you feel the buzz. And, and uh, we've always, we started from day one saying we'll sell all our colts and we'll sell uh, and we'll keep some fillies for race and, and so on. And um, so with a colt, it's destined to go to sale unless it fails the vet for some reason and, and it ends up with a gelding. There is still a buzz to it. Uh, they're still part of the, the farm that you see every day and uh, the staff that, uh, that make it the, the way it is. Um, it's just a, it's a great business, you know, and I, I was just sitting around this morning looking at the feelings that we're selling this year and, and my stud master's been with me 30 years, uh, 
Matt's been with me since 1974. He's still there, still directing operations and and, uh, and and lots of other staff, 20 years and 25 years. And it means as much to them. They're part of the family, and that's what makes that's what makes a good stuff farm. You know, can't do it without good wisdom. You are doing my job for me, Sir Peter. You're allowing me to seamlessly segue onto the next part. You mentioned Leon and, and, and the rest of the team. How do you, as a team, work on matings? I, I mean, I presume you have the, the final say in these in these scenarios, but what is the process of mating the Pencaro mares? How, how, how early do discussions start? What's the thinking there? Well, it's a, it's a good question. It's a good part of the uh, of the operation. I used to always have the last say. Now it's, I don't know what's happened, but it's uh, <laughs> there's other been usurped. <laughs> exactly. But uh, Leon, I, I've always loved the study of the pedigree. Um, but I did work out pretty early on a piece that you had to have a knowledge of the. Uh, physical attributes and things as well, which I didn't have then or nor now. But uh, but Leon is he's a great great uh, horseman and uh, um, just interestingly, as an aside, um, I got him from when I bought uh, what was to be called Rishbrook, uh and uh, she was born 1981. So he was leading it round into sale. When, when I bought uh, 65000 and uh, then he came soon after to work for us and he's been there ever since. Oh, my God, and, no wonder Wrightson's went out of business. They were giving away handlers with every yearling. That's extraordinary. <laughs> so, um, and he's still here today trying to sell us this, this, uh, this lot and doing a fantastic job. So, um, look, it just, you need a little, more than anything else, you need a lot of luck, of course, with the, uh, with all the decisions, but as far as the mating's concerned, we all love, you know, dreaming about breeding the next champion, and mm. uh, we're so lucky to have a, a wonderful supply of stallions that uh, just keep coming through from Australia and uh, through Coolmore and beyond. And um, if you can get, if you can marry the, the theory of the pedigree and uh, the fact of the, the the, the, the appearance and so on, it helps. I remember that you there was even internal debate or you uh, internal turmoil, I guess it would, would uh, you could almost describe it as, when you were umming and ahhing about sending mares over to Frankel to be covered on, on Southern Hemisphere time. Which mares am I going to send? Of Do I send our Eshazo? And she did end up going. We had this discussion at a press tour thing many, many years ago before you made the decision and you were seeking advice from random people in the press coterie at the time. I got the sense your mind was made up, but you were still canvassing opinion. Is that sort of the way you do business? I don't think you should ever close your mind to the next uh, opinion that you might get. And, and uh, um, that is always how I've, I've operated. I'm... I'm uh, I'm always hopeful the next piece of advice you get is going to be the, the crackerjack. 
You're not above taking a risk, though. I mean, we talked about the Frankel experiment, and that's that's had mixed success for you. I mean, there's a success in the sales ring. You've you've raced a few in the northern hemisphere that have come down eminent, obviously, to the forefront down here. You made that radical decision back in the early noughties to import a bunch of mares in Falter Danehill, the last southern hemisphere Danehills. These are all, to borrow a Sir Peter Vella term, you, you took the bull by the horns, but there's still a lot of risk attached. What, what's what's the next one? Are you, do you still have an appetite for risk? Look, it, it, it's the sort of business that if you don't like risk, it's you're in the wrong one. You know, you yes. have to become taking the risk. But undoubtedly, uh, the older you get, the less inclined you become to risk as you think of other things. So um, um, I, I still like to try and I tried to bring to Frankel this year in the north uh, and, and well, it wasn't successful, but uh, there's always another horse coming along that uh, that might be the one that, that, that takes you to that level. And uh, I'll keep enjoying that part. World champion sprinter Harry Angel. With a time form rating of 132, more than Nature Strip, Classique Legend or Red Zell, is it any wonder that his first yearlings have averaged more than nine times his fee? Is it any wonder that they have caught the eye of Chris Waller, Anthony and Sam Friedman, Michael and Richard Friedman, and Seamus Mills, to name but a few? They believe in angels. And why not? After all, he could fly. Let's talk about people. You have a laundry list of high achievers and gifted operators surrounding you. Leon, we've mentioned Andrew Seabrook, your daughter Petrea, and many more stretching into the distance. What is, how would you describe the Sir Peter Vela management style and, and has it evolved over the years? Well, I'm sure it will have evolved. I'm not sure it has evolved uh, consciously. It evolves as a matter of experience and, uh, and learning and, and so on. And, and yeah, no, I'm undoubtedly. Uh, you learn that you don't know everything, and that's a very good step on the first step on within uh, proper management. Uh, and uh, you, you learn also that maybe, you know, in not knowing everything, the next person you talk to just might have the answer to something, uh, the answer that you seek. So it's an open-minded approach and, uh, um, and surrounding yourself with the best possible people you can. And, um, and that's... Well, where I've been lucky that I've, I've had such wonderful advice and support, and, uh, it's been great. So would you say that one of your great successes is actually in the area of recruitment rather than management? I'd say it's been a very important part, yeah. And then just get out of their way? Yeah. No, no point in appointing a genius or something and then trying to convince them why he's not a genius, is it? No. No. The, the the great business partner in your life was your brother. How how difficult was the decision to split up the business interests with Philip last decade? Are you happy you did it with the benefit of hindsight? Because often hindsight can can put rose-coloured glasses on things. We didn't do it without a ton of thought and uh, it was unquestionably the thing to do at the time and uh, um, yeah, it's, it was the right thing. Yeah. Never easy, but it was the right thing. And do you feel, I mean, you, you, you have described yourself, even on this chat, as a hobbyist, you know, in the breeding space. Do you feel at some point you're going to have to uh, suck it up and admit that this is a business? 
Or is it still fun for you? Well, it is still fun. And, and uh, um, at some stage, I'm going to have to realise that uh, there will be a, it will be the responsibility of other family members. Uh, yes. And that's the hardest the decision, you know, that do you, uh, in the absence of people, that this business takes a, a, a lot more than capital. It takes a love of uh, an industry, an animal, um, and uh, if if your beneficiaries aren't, don't have that, then uh, you're going down the wrong path to, to force it on them. So, uh, yeah, they're all come a day, they'll be reviewed, but uh, hopefully not immediately. Not immediately, exactly. Let's not eulogise yet. Uh, you know, there's, there's, still, there's still plenty to go. All right, well, we'll wrap up very shortly with our, our last two segments that we do on every episode of Connections Cast. First of all, we're going to do a quick fire. would you rather. So I'm going to give you two options. You just tell me which one you lean towards. You ready? Sure. Melbourne Cup or the Everest? Melbourne Cup. Zabil or Dane Hill? Ooh, Zabil. Caraca or Ellerslie? Caraca. Beer or wine? I think I know what the answer is going to be here. <laughs> so much beer at university, I never needed another one. <laughs> uh, Sir Peter or Sir Tristram? Sir Tristram. A top lot or winner's circle? Winner's circle. And finally, if you were to be put in complete dictatorial control of racing in New Zealand, what would you do on your first day in the job? Phew. Okay. Well, we would definitely need to address the racing services, the handicapping system, the um, development of jockey training, uh, this is just the first day, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's got 24 hours, yes. <laughs> yes, I, I think that the, um, the subtext there is there's a lot to work on in, in New Zealand racing, but you, you seem in this chat to be quite relatively hopeful, dare I say it, of the future. My qu- final question to you, and it's, it's born out of this, is New Zealand big enough to sustain a robust racing industry or are we going to are we going to see continued evolution of a bloodstock industry servicing two racing industries if you like in Australia and New Zealand we are incredibly fortunate that we have a comparative advantage in the pasture we grow the animals that we can produce and the horse that produce so we're never going to be able to compete with Australia and, and uh, in America in terms of volumes. Of, of, uh, but I think we'll always have an industry. I think we, we, we somehow may mould and change and, and, and uh, where we become a smaller producer to a wider audience, but we will still have that comparative advantage as far as climate protein in the pasture and so on. So I'd be very confident that that it's not going to go anywhere soon. Sir Peter Vella, thank you. Pleasure. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of TDN or ZenZ's Connections Cast, brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and recommend us to friends. And of course, sign up for TDN or ZenZ's Daily Edition for the best thoroughbred news and information in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening. <laughs>